Breaking the stigma of addiction. This is Zach's life, a story of love, addiction, loss, grief, and recovery. Reflecting on Zachary Horton and others in our community, both, both inside and, and outside of, of their, their addiction. addiction. Hosted by Jim Horton of the Zachary Horton Foundation. Our next guest uh, this evening is Aaron Carr. Aaron is going to be uh, joining us via Zoom. Aaron is a author and advocate known for her writing on addiction and recovery. Her book, Strung Out, shares her first-hand knowledge of the challenges of addiction and recovery. Discusses the need to rethink tough love as a response to addiction. She writes a weekly advice column, Ask Aaron, on Substack, and her personal essays have appeared in Self, Marie Claire, Salon, Huffington Post, Esquire, Cosmopolitan, and others. Aaron comes to us from New York City. Uh, Aaron, nice to have you. Hi. Thank you so much for having me here. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and I'm just really honored uh, to be a part of it. I spend a lot of my time when I'm not writing, um, speaking with parents, speaking to loved ones of people who lost people to addiction, um, speaking to people who are struggling with addiction and so forth. And I'm just really grateful that I can be a part of this tonight. I think this is a wonderful thing that you're doing um, because I fully believe that harm reduction is the way forward. While, I was, while I'm now in New York City, I was born and raised in California. Um, so California is also near and dear to my heart. I want to start by telling you about uh, an email I received about a year after Strung Out was published. And it was from a stranger, which is not unusual. Between the advice column and the book, I get emails from strangers, you know, dozens of emails a week. This email started out by saying, I'm desperately missing my sister. Um, what was different about this email is that the stranger wanted to know if I remembered her sister or what her sister had written to me a few months earlier. She explained that her sister had given the book to their mother and to her sister. And her mom wanted to thank me for helping her understand um, what her daughter had been going through and for making her daughter feel seen. She also told me that her sister had recently died of an overdose. As I searched back through my DMs looking for her sister's message, I felt that familiar buzz of sadness racing through me. And I found those messages. This young woman told me she was struggling, um, that she felt ashamed, that she was trying to get help. She thanked me for writing the book and said that I'd given her hope. We exchanged a few messages and she died a month later. As I read over those messages, I felt that feeling um, that I felt many times of being gutted. I didn't know her, but I knew her pain. And I knew that that could have been me. I'd overdosed multiple times in my years of active addiction. The time that was the most severe, I had been um, saved from a friend who performed rescue breathing. And if she hadn't been there, I'd be dead. That was 25 years ago. And I have no way to quantify the amount of people I've lost to addiction. Um, people like this young woman, 
I want to give you a little bit of background. I was born in the 1970s and grew up in an upper middle class suburb of Los Angeles. And despite my parents' divorce, on the outside, it appeared that I had everything. But the truth was that as far back as I could remember, I was always looking for an exit door. I was looking for some sort of escape from childhood trauma that I didn't understand at the time and depression. I was eight when I took my first opiate. It was an expired painkiller that I found in our medicine cabinet. I didn't know anything about what it would do, but it had a label on it that said may cause drowsiness. And that was enough for me because that's what I wanted. I wanted to be drowsy. I wanted to be less awake. I wanted anything to escape what I was feeling. Instead of letting people see the pain that I was in, my modus operandi was to just sort of shine bright. I excelled at school, I had a lot of friends, and I thought that I could sort of distract people from what was really going on inside of me if everything looked okay on the outside. And that worked for a long time. By the time I turned 13, that act was getting harder to maintain. I was clinically depressed, prone to self-harm, and feeling isolated. That was when I was introduced to heroin, and it was the exit door that I had been seeking. When I speak to people about my addiction, I always explain it like this, that it, for me, it was never about getting high. It was about getting low. It was about getting underneath the feelings that I didn't understand and that I really couldn't tolerate. In some ways, heroin simultaneously saved and destroyed me. And I didn't fall apart when I started using, not at first. Instead, I successfully hid my drug use from virtually everyone in my life, parents, friends, boyfriends, and I kept up that charade for a decade. If you had known me then, you knew me as a cheerleader, a volleyball player, an equestrian, an actress, a straight-A student, a friend, a daughter. But what you didn't know was I was also a heroin addict. I was leading a double life, keeping it together on the outside and crumbling on the inside. When I got caught at age 23 and went to rehab for the first time, my family and friends were shocked. What ensued was five years of being stuck in a series of relapses, dealing with increasing mental health issues and reaching new lows I never thought I'd reach. When I was 28 and pregnant with my son Atticus, I stopped using. At the time, the protocol was to put pregnant women on methadone, which was something I was resisted into wanting to do. I found a doctor who was willing under supervision to detox me over the course of seven days using buprenorphine, which at the time wasn't used as, as, as frequently and now is widely used in medication and assisted treatment such as Suboxone. I was committed to staying off drugs for the duration of my pregnancy, but I didn't believe that I'd be able to stay away forever. I didn't believe that I'd be able to escape that cycle that I was in or that I'd ever be happy. When I gave birth to Atticus, I had one of those lightning bolt moments. I looked into his eyes and something inside of me shifted. And I had that singular pulsing thought, I love you more than I hate myself. Now that certainly didn't change everything overnight, but it became the impetus 
And it was the push that I needed to try anything and everything. Now, why did that work for me and it doesn't work for some people? A big, 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 big part of that, and I cannot stress this enough, is that I had access to long-term care, which is key. We cannot expect to send people to rehab for 28 days and that they're going to get out and that life is just going to go on and they're going to maybe go to 12-step meetings and that, that this is just going to continue into you know happy sobriety. I needed years of psychiatric help, of trauma therapy, of lots of cognitive behavioral therapy, and ultimately psychiatric medication to maintain recovery. A big part of why it took me so long and why I kept things so hidden, it was the stigma around heroin and addiction in general. With everything that I do now in my life, whether it's writing or speaking on the topic of, topic of addiction, it is to alleviate that stigma. And I think that we cannot ignore the symbiotic relationship between shame and stigma. People talk about gateway drugs. Shame was my first drug. There is a quote that's often attributed to Russell Brand that, gate, that, the gate, that his gateway drug was trauma. People say this a lot. For me, trauma was the catalyst, but my gateway drug was shame. All of my behavior that harmed me was a reaffirmation of that shame. I felt bad about myself and all the things that I did would produce more shame. And this is a perpetuation of a shame cycle that I was stuck in. And I have seen people stuck in over and over again. Shame keeps people locked in abusive relationships. It keeps people in toxic work environments. It keeps people in all sorts of unhealthy situations because it can be more painful to confront the reality of a situation than to continue in that known cycle. Shame stopped me for, from asking for help and I didn't have half the barriers that so many others do. There are many, many other related barriers that add to that stigma racial barriers, socioeconomic barriers, barriers to do with sexual orientation and gender identity, cultural barriers, barriers of incarceration, homelessness, and of course, mental illness. Everyone in this room is likely aware of the staggering overdose statistics that have emerged in the past year. And anytime I discuss them, be it with legislators, medical professionals, police departments, public health officials, or parents. I cannot stress enough that the deaths we are seeing are one, preventable, and two, it is our drug policies that are killing people. There is no doubt that the way to change public perception begins with those on the front lines of the drug epidemic. Mental health professionals, law enforcement, the court system, and public health policymakers. It has to start there. It's why I have sat on numerous panels with representatives from all of these groups. It's why I take meetings with congressional reps and legislative aides of both parties. And the good news is that we are headed in the right direction. We're certainly seeing that with the way things are shifting with our national drug policies. But it, it, the longer that it is taking us to get where we need to go, the greater number of people will die. 
when we limit prescriptions, when we fine and prosecute medical providers and pharmacies, we are making the problem infinitely worse. It is wrong targeting. First and foremost, and I will shout this until the day I die, we need to hammer home the message that addiction is a public health issue, full stop. It is not a moral failing. And what do we do with other public health issues? We use evidence-based solutions. That is the foundation of harm reduction and what we're here tonight to discuss. We don't incarcerate people. What works is harm reduction because people cannot recover if they're dead. And as long as they are alive, there is hope because people need a non-judgmental path to recovery. This is about healthcare, not enabling. What works is decriminalization. We should be diverting the funds used to jail people and for-profit detention centers and instead invest in health. What works is treating those struggling with addiction like human beings. Tough love rarely helps. Connecting people to communities, providing them with healthcare and stable housing, that is what works. What also works is early intervention in the way of mental health services that are free and preventative, especially with young people. Imagine the difference we could make by spending tax dollars to ensure young people are given the tools and help they need to thrive. As I mentioned, I was eight years old the first time I took an opiate. I say this because I often talk to friends who have kids. I'm a mother myself. I have a five-year-old and a 19-year-old. And when people talk to ask me about when they should start having the drug talk, I say that we have them as soon as we start talking to them because we start having the discussion about drugs before we ever mention the word drugs. We start by talking about emotional regulation. We start by opening up conversations about things that we struggled with when we were kids. We open up a non-judgmental, safe line of communication with our children. But long before they hit middle school, we need to talk to them about drugs, not in a spooky, weapons of mass destruction, boogeyman way, but in a way where we give them neutral facts about drugs and the tools so that they have the self-efficacy to make informed decisions about keeping themselves safe. When I was 13, I started using heroin and I struggled with that addiction for 15 years. I needed mental health care, not just say no. <clears throat> As a country, the United States has spent over a trillion dollars on the war on drugs. And look at where we are. What have we accomplished we have driven people away from obtaining legal regulated pain medication to the illegal drug market where the supply is unregulated and flooded with fentanyl and now even scarier substances. We have achieved racially biased mass incarceration. In 2022, the U.S. spent approximately $41 billion on drug treatment and prevention, which sounds like a lot. Now, I don't know where all of that money went, but th that's the number. 
And let's contrast that with mass incarceration. One in five people who are incarcerated are being incarcerated for a drug offense. And the amount of money that we spend on that one in five per year is $182 billion. If we shifted our focus on what needs to be done to save lives, we would be concerned with treating the health of human beings, not fighting a war that is impossible to win. Because we will never win the war as long as there are people who are seeking to treat emotional pain, because that is what addiction is. These are people treating emotional pain. As of March 5th of this year, I have been in sustained recovery from addiction for 20 years. This is something that I never thought was possible. I was a chronic relapser. I was, at the time that I was first introduced to recovery, this was in the late 90s when I first was in um, recovery, and I was a chronic relapser. And with each relapse, I accumulated more and more shame around it. This is something that we need to talk about openly within recovery communities, not that it's a necessary part of the process, but that it is a normal part of the process and that we don't erase the recovery that we had. We build upon it after a relapse. When I finally began to address my own mental health issues and childhood trauma, I was able to then do the spiritual work that I needed to do to maintain recovery. I want to read you a very short excerpt from the last chapter in my book that articulates my feelings about the last 20 years of recovery, because I think I said it in the book better than I can say it now. I have often compared my years spent in active addiction to being in a room on fire. With each passing year, with each line I crossed that I said I wouldn't, those flames got bigger, those flames got closer, and I couldn't figure a way out of the room. Every exit I approached was too thick with smoke and fire to get through. The last time I detoxed when I was pregnant with Atticus, I knew that I couldn't stay in that room any longer. That staying in that room would kill us both. I made a decision to walk through the flames and fortunately made it out. I didn't know until I'd walked right through that had been the solution all along. As I believe is true with most compulsions, for addicts, the only way out is through, through the pain and the shame and the trauma, through facing the very things we ran from when we turned to drugs. And that is the beginning. I've stayed on medication since 2012 and it has transformed my life. I accepted that my brain works differently and needs chemical help to function well. Certainly, I'm not happy all the time, but in general, I am. I don't have the extreme highs and lows, I don't act out in destructive ways, and I can mostly regulate my emotions. And with time and therapy and further spiritual searching, I have healed and continue to heal. I have learned how to stay. I have learned how to sit in discomfort and grief. I have learned how to be in a relationship, a partnership. I have learned how to stop looking for an exit. Having gone through sexual abuse, rape, heroin addiction, and mental illness, and experiencing the PTSD of all of it, I had to learn how to make it through extreme pain without destroying my life. 
I had to grow spiritually and mentally and emotionally. And that growth has made me capable of facing life in a way I didn't think I could. Someone once asked me about my writing. Don't you want to leave all that mess behind you? When we write the truth, when we write about our experiences, we reflect back what it means to be a human being. And that reflection creates connection. I write what I know, what I've learned, and about the road that got me from there to here. We turn to art and make art to feel less alone, to stir something, to think, to breathe, to dream, to recover. I have said this before, and it remains true for me. I have no desire to run from my past, to not look back to all that mess. That mess is a part of me. That mess has allowed me to live and be here today. I hope that by sharing my story with you, I make you feel less alone. My life today is unrecognizable from what it once was at eight, at 13, at 23, at 26. I never would have believed the peace and happiness I found was possible. I didn't think I could let go of the shame. I didn't think I could tell the truth. I didn't think I could forgive myself or not see myself as a monster. For so many years, I didn't think I'd make it out of addiction and depression alive. I was certain that I'd meet my end in overdose or by suicide. But here I am. For the ones who didn't make it, for the ones who survived, for the ones who are still struggling, I see you, I believe in you, I love you. What you're doing here tonight as a community is how we are going to see those overdose and addiction rates drop. Community and connection and supporting one another is the answer. It's the way forward. And I'm so grateful that there are people like all of you who are invested in being a part of the solution. So I thank you for allowing me to tell you a little bit about my story and to be a part of this tonight. Thank you. This has been an episode of Zach's Life. Thank you so much for listening. For more info on our foundation and for addiction resources, visit ZacharyHortonFoundation.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a story to tell and want to be a guest on our podcast, email me directly at jim at ZacharyHortonFoundation.org.